from west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 262 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, Disney his- who is a Disney historian and author, Spencer Wright. Spencer, welcome back to Connecting with Walt. Thank you for having me back. Happy to be here. Great. So so have you been up to anything lately that our listeners might find interesting since we haven't talked to you in a while? Yeah, well, at the end, maybe we'll talk about it, but I did my first run Disney event in okay. April, and okay. that was fantastic. So I'm training for my first marathon down there, which will be in January. Okay, excellent. Well, that's terrific. Congratulations. Yeah, we'll talk more about it then and towards the end of the show. But longtime listeners to the show have heard Spencer talk about his book, Voices Behind the Magic, about the careers of Disney voice actors. In his latest book, The Enchanted Disney, uh, Spencer chronicles the lives of several Disney live-action actors who began their careers during the golden age of Hollywood, when the studio system ruled. So, Spencer, what inspired you to write this book? So about five years ago or so, I was going to start working on a book in the style of Jim Corcus's Vault of Walt Books, um, sort of talking about different topics that, you know, discuss the connections between the world of Disney and old Hollywood. And so by old Hollywood, I'm talking about about the mid-20s to mid-50s, when Los Angeles was a center of filmmaking. So one of the chapters was going to be a section on people from this world who then later appeared in Disney live action films. So as I got working on it, I realized many of these individuals, you know, could easily be a chapter of a book. And, you know, this could easily be a book if I find a way to link everything together. Um, so in 15 chapters, I discuss, you know, 15 different people who were in live action films, you know, their connections to the world of Disney, Walt's life. Um, really spanning the history of the Walt Disney Company up into just about the present. Mm -hmm. Good. And how did you select the title of the book, The Enchanting Disney? Yeah, so um, in terms of the title, I had a generic title until I found one that I liked. And so I selected The Enchanted Disney um, because one of the chapters is on a character actress named Iris Adrian, who had had over 100 film roles working at every studio from you know, the lavish Paramount at its height to the absolute lowest budget. And she described the studio as the enchanted Disney. Um, She said, if it's raining in California, it's always still sunny at Disney's. (laughs) There's a lot of truth to that too. We've heard over the years with Walt and the Disney weather that they talked about. But um, yeah, I thought that was a, that was a great title for a book. So now you said you have 15 actors and actresses whose careers you've documented. How did you come up with these 15? Because there's, there was a whole lot more I thought could be in a whole nother, you know, volume two of this one. So how did you settle on these? Well, the first criteria is I wanted, you know, an individual that had an interesting life, you know, body of work and career. And that part was very easy. You know, that list is easy to put together. And then also I wanted to cover a variety of eras of the Walt Disney Company 
um, as well as a wide variety of films that the Disney company made, you know, in eras throughout Hollywood. Um, so about two thirds of the book is directly related to Disney. And then about a third of the book discusses the history of movies, you know, Hollywood, what happened when the studio system fell apart. Um, you know, so that way anyone reading who maybe doesn't know as much about the history of movies and Walt's place um, can learn a lot more. Oh, absolutely. I think that's why this would appeal not only to Disney fans, but just to people who are interested in the golden age of Hollywood and and some of the most famous actors and actresses. Because in a lot of cases, the their Disney um, connection came towards the end of their careers. So they, and, and like you said, they had some of them had decades and decades of film experience that you've talked about in your book. Now, you mentioned the studio system, and I did in the introduction. A lot of our younger listeners may not know what was the studio system and how it influenced Hollywood and the actors. Yeah, so in terms of the studio system, from about the early mid-20s into the 1950s, Hollywood and the movies were really ruled by five major studios, and then there were a series of smaller studios and then sort of niche studios, which was, you know, Walt Disney. Um, but the main, you know, thing relevant to the book is that, you know, stars, actors, actresses, as well as a lot of crew members were under very tight contracts to a studio. So if you had a contract with MGM or Paramount, um, you know, it lasting seven years was very common. And it had a lot of pros and cons. Um, you know, in terms of the pros, there were publicity people who handled your publicity. If you were a star, they would send people out to find plays that would be good roles for you to read books that could be made into movies for you, um, you know, find lavish homes for you to live in. But then the con is they basically controlled every aspect of your life. Oh, yeah, because, you know, they would set them up on you know with in pretend relationships for publicity purposes and you know things like that change your name mm-hmm. well, that's even common today yes so, so what brought what brought about oh and also that's why you you'll hear when you read about old films how they'll say a star was lent by one studio to another yes because they didn't have a choice unless they didn't want to get paid yeah. <laughs> so what brought about the end of the studio system? It was a variety of factors. One of the main ones was, you know, right after World War II, there was suburbanization. Um, so people didn't go to the theater as much. They stayed home and they watched television. Um, you know, in the 20s and 30s, films really was the one mass, you know, one of the main forms of, you know, entertainment for the masses. And then during the 40s and World War II, people were encouraged to stay home as much as possible to conserve resources for the war. So they would go to the movies as an escape. Um, so, you know, then people stayed home and watched television. Um, actors began asserting their independence so the studios didn't have the same reliable, you know, cast of stars that they could put movie after movie. And then there was a Supreme Court decision in 1948. Um, so as a result of this Supreme Court decision, the studios were no longer permitted to own their studios. So like, you know, MGM would own, you know, their film production, their distribution and their studios and rake in money. And they can no longer rake in money the same way. So now... When you were re when you were researching these stars in their um, careers in Hollywood, was there a common thread as to how they ended up at the Walt Disney Studio towards the end of their careers? A lot of um, what happened is simply the Walt Disney Studio asked them to be in the film. 
Um, so, you know, the first chapter I talk about silent film star Pola Negri, who essentially was forgotten by society. She was one of the, you know, the main stars in the United States in the 1920s. And by the 1960s, she was totally forgotten. And the studio asked her. Um, of course, I learned this right after I finished the manuscript. But one of the main forces was there was a casting director named Bill Shepard who loved the character actors. So he tracked a lot of character actors down to also appear in Disney movies. Okay. Now, in terms of what attracted them to Disney, you know, it was a respected brand. They consistently made um, quality work. And especially important as you get into the 60s and 70s is they made family-friendly, clean work. All right. Yes. And a lot of them commented on that. And and also in your book, they talk about how, again, there was a family feel to it. They had great respect for Walt Disney. He t- took good care of them. Um, was what seemed to be common comments. Yeah, they were always treated with respect. Um, and especially, you know, they were expected to show up and be themselves, make a contribution um, and work hard. And that was enjoyable for them, that their talents were respected. They just weren't, you know, chattel. Right. Good. Well, that's always good to hear. <laughs> yes. They were treated with respect. So um, by the Disney studio. So, in your book, you cover the careers of 15 actors, as you mentioned. I'd like to take a look at a few of them, maybe the ones that I'm pretty confident most of our listeners would have heard of, either maybe not their Disney work, but maybe some of the other work that they've also done over the years. Let's start with Maureen O'Hara. She was, uh, a lot of us might know her from Miracle on 34th Street as the, the doubting mother but uh, but she had a long career. She acted with John Wayne and did all kinds of things. What can you tell us about her? Yeah, so she was an actress um, from Ireland, and she arrived in Hollywood in 1939, which many people feel is sort of the peak year for this golden age of Hollywood. It's the year when The Wizard of Oz came out, Gone with the Wind, um, many, many hits. And she was in a lot of Westerns, a lot of adventure pictures, Um, You know, she played a lot of very tough women on screen. And then she was eventually cast in, you know, Walt Disney's The Parent Trap. And, you know, one thing when we, in in 1964, and one thing, I'm sorry, that's not the correct year for The Parent Trap. Um, I think it was 1960, perhaps. Um, She was cast in The Parent Trap. Um, And, you know, what's interesting about her is she was 40 years old, um, and it really helped revive her career. Unfortunately, during this era, you know, women tended to age out of stardom very, very quickly. Um, But for her, you know, being in the parent trap really helped revive her career, you know, even at age 40. Um, Yeah, and she was also like a pinup girl back in the day. She had some very um, alluring publicity shots. Yes, especially during World War II. In the parent trap, it was 1961. Mm -hmm. There we go. yeah, and this is one I also remember the reimagining very well um, from when I was a child. It was always very popular with yeah, Lindsay so, Lohan. So, what was what was um, what was her experience with making the Parent Trap? Did she talk about that at all? Oh, she talked quite a bit about it. Um, the first issue she had was is that she was offered twenty five thousand dollars to appear in the picture. Um, and her minimum was $75,000, which Walt eventually caved in on. I mean, you know, 
pretty much most everyone that I've read or spoken to that worked at the Walt Disney Studio, they loved their experience, but Disney didn't always pay the highest. Mm-hmm. Um, but fortunately, I still chew a little bit today, but fortunately in her case, you know, they did come through. And working on The Parent Trap, working with Brian Keith and a young Haley Mills, um, that was an experience that she you know, absolutely loved and enjoyed. Um, now in billing, in terms of where her name appears in the credits, her name was put below Haley Mills. And she you know, indicated in her contract her name was supposed to appear ahead of any other actress. Um, so she was, she did go to the Screen Actors Guild. And according to her in her autobiography, um, Walt essentially sent her a message that if you pursue this, your career will be over. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And she <laughs> well, said there this, was the business side of Walt. <laughs> yeah. And so she, she decided to let it go. Um, and normally she wasn't someone to back down. But I think in her case, she decided, is this worth sort of losing a career over? Um, because she knew what kind of clout Walt had. Mm-hmm. So, and I guess it's because Walt really wanted to promote Haley Mills since she was a, a, a rising star in the Disney studio. Yes. And, you know, one of the reasons she was cast, um, as along with Brian Keith, is to ensure that he had these established names to complement this newer names, um, who is Haley Mills. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, another another actress you talk about is Agnes Moorhead. And people from my generation, of course, know her as um, Endora from Bewitched. But again, she was another one that ha- way before Bewitched came along, she had a huge career in Hollywood. Yeah, and I'm glad we're talking about her because one of the you know things I hope readers get from the book is that, you know, when you look at someone, when you meet someone, you never know you know, what their story is, what their background is, what their life has been like. Um, Because whenever I mentioned to anyone that I was working on Agnes Moorhead, that's the first thing they would mention is Bewitched. Um, And often didn't realize that she had this whole other long career. She was very much a workaholic. And she had a lot of supporting roles on films. And she really shined on radio, um, especially playing a lot of sort of shrill type women. Um, which is what we see her playing, you know, as Mrs. Snow in Pollyanna. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she plays this sort of neurotic hypochondriac. And, With a and heart that, of gold. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> eventually she comes through. She softens. Mm-hmm. They're just below the surface. Um, you know, and really for her, you know, it's having that right balance between being sort of shrill and neurotic, but also being um, sympathetic. Right. Now, tell us a little about Agnes Moorhead's early career, because like she's in what is considered one of the greatest films of all times, and that's Citizen Kane. Even though she has a very small role in it, it's a significant role. Yeah, she was in Citizen Kane, um, directed by Orson Welles, and that actually was her first film role. Um, before that, she was in New York City. She struggled on the stage, um, a lot of times just eating bread and rice to get by. And then she performed on radio and then was the mother in Citizen Kane. And pretty much from there, her um, film career immediately took off. And she she wasn't a character actress, but she wasn't a star either. She was a very reliable supporting player. Um, and she was, yeah. No, I was just going to say what was funny is I always think of her no matter what role she was in, she looked older than she really was. Yes. 
I mean, and she started in films at age 40. Um, and and she, like, like you said, she was always good at sort of playing a lot older, um, which, you know, which she was fine with because it always meant she had consistent work. Mm-hmm. She never really had to struggle to find what once she took off in movies. Yeah. And she, um, I like you, I like listening to the old, you know, radio shows from the classic age. And, uh, and you know, there's a lot of channels that run them now, but even when I was a boy, when they were rerunning them still on just regular stations, she was in all kinds of film. She was Orson Welles stable sort of in his stable for his show, but she was in tremendous number of radio shows as a voice actress. Yeah, she was the first lady of suspense. Mm-hmm. Um, and suspense is a show that probably holds up as one of the best from that era. Um, at least in my opinion. Yeah. Which is a, a really good mystery film. And you never know what it was going to be a mystery series. You never knew what it was going to be from one week to the next. It wasn't like it was ghosts and things like that. It was, I even heard one not long ago on, it was just a, it was a world war two story. <laughs> and um, yeah. so, yeah, so, so it was a great series. So. And a lot of them are quite scary. Um, I started listening to them years ago when I'd walk to the train in the morning, it'd still be dark out. Mm-hmm. And there are some, I just had to turn off because they're so eerie. Cause once your imagination kicks in, Especially when you're a, a little boy listening to them in the dark <laughs> on your radio. Yeah. Yes, they are. They are. So any um, did, did she have any comments about her experience with Disney? She did. She enjoyed the studio. Um, and she also was quite vocal as the 60s and 70s went on about um, the importance of family-friendly entertainment. Um, she was later in a film for Disney on television, um, The Strange Monster of Strawberry Cove. Um, mm-hmm. And she was invited to the opening of Walt Disney World, um, which she referred to as the most bewitching place she's ever seen. <laughs> now that's a cute little yeah. play on words. <laughs> which I thought was quite fitting. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, but she really appreciated because, you know, what happened is, is pretty quickly into the 60s, a lot more adult content was entering films. Um, and this was coming right off of an era where, you know, you had Lucy and Desi in separate beds in their bedroom. Um, and even scenes like that were a little questionable. So there was a startling shift in product. Um, so even though sometimes people lobbed a little bit of criticism at Disney for being very corny and sentimental, it was consistently appreciated that they're making quality entertainment. The whole family can enjoy. Right. And, and Walt said, well, he makes corny films because he's corny. Right. Cause that's what he likes. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what he liked worked. So. Yeah. And he said, you know, like during his era, you know, the, the highest grossing films like snow white and the seven dwarfs and the 10 commandments, these are family friendly films. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I know a lot of times that's why actors say, you know, even after an illustrious career, they want, they, they want to be in a Disney film because they want something their children and grandchildren can see. Because many of their films, as you were saying, are not family oriented. Right. Not that they're, not that they're like, there's anything, you know, inappropriate. It's just that the storyline is for adult sensibilities. So. Right. Or by today's standards are not too shocking, but there was just a, such a shift at the time. Yes. Oh, the shift after World War II, significant. Even after World War I, it started yeah. changing. Definitely World War II. So, 
You mentioned one of my favorite actors in one of my favorite films, and he's been in many of my favorite films. And I think people, and he's been parodied, even like in Warner Brothers cartoons and all that, and Disney shorts, is Peter Lorre. Of course, we know him probably from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, but he he's in, one again, another one of my favorite films, Casablanca, as a very oily kind of character. <laughs> so... Yes, so Peter Lorre, and he played these sort of oily, villainous characters um, through the 30s, 40s, into the 50s, and he was Kansai, so he wasn't actually villainous in that movie, at least. Um, He played Kansai in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Mm -hmm. Um, which is really, I mean, Disney live-action film probably at its absolute best, Um, from the music, the settings, where it was filmed, um, the Nautilus, the interiors by Emil Curie. Um, and like you said, he was also, you know, his character of sort of this um, lecherous, villainous, drooping, bug-eyed type character was used in about 800 different animated, you know, shorts, movies, TV shows. Um, I got lucky with him because actually a book came out, the animated Peter Lorre, just as I started the book. Um, so I had a great reference to see where, you know, he appeared in, you know, work of Disney, Um, probably most prominently the genie in Aladdin briefly impersonates Peter Lorre. That's true. That's true. And probably a lot of folks had no idea who that was when they saw it. Yeah. But he just had an interesting life because he was born into Germany. Um, He was Jewish of Jewish descent and was born into Germany as well, lived in Germany as of course the third Reich was, was um, gaining its power, and he had he had to leave, so he got out just in time. Yeah, it, well, he left immediately. He was like, "I'm leaving now," um, because some people wanted to wait and see what happened politically, and he's like, "No, we." He had a wife at the time. He's like, "We just have to leave." Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the thing too is, he left. He didn't speak any English. Um, and you know, there are many actors, directors, producers who came to both England. He came to England first in the U.S. to make films who didn't speak English, um, who a lot of the early film roles were totally phonetic. So they didn't know what they're saying. Um, and I bring that up partially because that's something that I think about whenever I feel challenged by something. I'm like, there are people that basically came you know, to the other side of the world, didn't speak the language and made a success of themselves. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, so I that's, can do this. That's the story of America. Yes. And, and some of its greatness uh, is, uh, are people who did that and then the contributions that they made to the country. He was also on suspense. Did he and Agnes Moorhead ever act in anything together? Do you know? Not that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, but he, similar to Agnes Moorhead, both loved radio because they didn't have the traditional looks of a star, um, you know, during a much more shallow era, Mm -hmm. but on radio, it didn't matter. So they could shine. Um, So, you know, they would make all kinds of hand gestures and dramatic things on radio that were okay as part of their performance. Um, And they could really just be themselves. Yeah. We have, um, there's a little street, there's a tiny theater on our historic street from the, in my town that, that was built during the gold rush. And they will, um, as what they do every year is they will actually just perform one of these classic radio shows on stage as if they're in the studio and we are in the audience. 
watching. We're the radio studio audience. And it's just fascinating to see how they how they do it and act it out. And you're right, they have these hand gestures and they sort of act it out a little as they do it. And they just drop the pages of their script so it doesn't they don't make noises over the microphone. I mean it's um it's fun to watch. Yeah. Yeah, I've never seen it live, but I've heard like that's that's sort of coming back. Um like I said, for anyone that I've heard that's gone to one of those performances, it's always a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so how did Peter Lorre end up on in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea? Because he's still pretty good career going. And was it, did Walt ask him? Was that one of the, one, is that one of the actors Walt particularly wanted? Well, he was cast by Harper Goff, um, who knew him from Warner Brothers and visualized him. And actually, Peter Lorre was in these sort of lecherous type roles under contract at Warner Brothers, just cast again and again. And again, and like many, he got sick and tired of it. And so this was really his return to Hollywood. Um, And he was hoping for more comedic roles, which didn't quite pan out. Um, But he was picked because, you know, Harper Goff would read the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea book. um, And that's who he visualized to play Conseil. How interesting. So I've read the book recently and... Peter Lorre just wasn't my mental image. No, not at all. It's the total opposite. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. So, but um, so anyway, and what were his thoughts about working for Walt Disney? Oh, he absolutely loved it. Um, they filmed the beach scenes that are in the movie in New Guinea. They filmed them in Jamaica. He had a great time in Jamaica. Um, he had fun filming with Kirk Douglas as well as the Seal. Um, Esmeralda the Seal. Um, he didn't go to the Bahamas as part of the filming, but he did don the you know dive suit that they wear, and that was quite heavy and grueling. Um, but that's definitely a different experience for him. Um, and Walt did tell him, he said, you know, the squid's playing the part. You, you know, he told Walt, he's like, you know, the squid's playing the part I usually play. <laughs> so it was funny. nice for him to be in a different kind of role. Yeah, and then I know from um, watching... Uh, we have a television series that's still running up here called Creature Features. When mm-hmm. I was a t- it started when I was a young teenager. And I sort of got to know Peter Laurie also because he sort of made it towards the end. He was in a lot of B films, you know, sort of B horror films with like Vincent Price and others. Yes. Yeah. For Roger Corman. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a lot of fun, too, with Boris Karloff and Basil Rathbone. Um, although I, I just want to make clear that even though Harper Goff sort of picked him, Walt always had final approval. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that goes without saying. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, one, this is one where when I was telling friends over the weekend about, um, you know, about this show in the book, this is the actress that when I said she was in Disney films, everybody was stunned. And that, because this is a grand dame of film, and uh, again, one of my favorites, um, Betty Davis. What a career. What an actress. Yeah, and she's probably one of my favorite people from history in general. Um, and of the people I write about, she may be probably still the most well-known. Mm-hmm. Um, she still has a great... Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I just watched on... Um, 
Amazon Prime, little the little foxes is running right now. So I I just watched it like a week or so ago because I hadn't seen it since my university days. And oh my gosh, she was such a conniving character. I mean, she was just a duplicitous. I mean, she was perfect. Yes. Yep. And that movie that her role as Regina Giddens in the little foxes helped inspire, um, lady Tremaine, um, the evil stepmother in Cinderella. She helped inspire both the animated as well as the live action. Yeah. And I could see that once when I read that in your book and I thought of those characters, I thought, yeah, I could definitely see that, especially the animated one. It was even a somewhat of a physical resemblance to how the character wore her hair and dressed. So, um, and the only reason I sort of figured that out is because I, I watched the live action film, you know, at the time I started writing the book mm-hmm. and I saw, you know, Kate Blanchett as Lady Tremaine walk in the house. And I'm like, this feels very old Hollywood to me. Um, like it feels very much like a Warner Brothers sort of, like you say, grand dame villainous type character. So I just Googled it and all these interviews with Kate Blanchett came up where she's saying, yeah, she was heavily inspired in that role by the roles that Betty Davis would play. Joan Crawford would play. Barbara Stanwyck. Mm-hmm. So for our younger, again, our younger listeners may not yes. know who Betty Davis is. Cause there's, she wasn't on like a, wasn't like Agnes Moorhead where she was on a popular TV show um, or anything. So talk a little about her career because it was an amazing one. Yeah. She was in films from the early thirties up until the late eighties. And she's probably most known for an 18 year period at Warner brothers. And she played a lot of, um, very strong villainous women, but also a lot of women sort of down on their luck who overcome hardship. And one thing that really distinguished her is the fact that she could play a wide variety of roles, you know, under this contract system, the studio system, people were typecast very, very quickly. So for example, Peter Lorre was pretty much immediately typecast as these sort of lecherous, pathetic villain types. But Betty Davis, she both exhibited the talent and she also fought extremely hard for the roles she had. Um, So she might play an empress in one movie, someone going up against gangsters in another movie, a, you know, a sad spinster who finds a happy ending in the next movie. Um, And she just made one after another after another. Um, And then she did continue to work into the 50s and 60s and beyond, although sometimes she did struggle. Um, but her movies are still beloved today. I mean, you mentioned mm-hmm. The Little Foxes. Um, she was in a movie called Now Voyager in the 40s. Oh, That's one of my great, favorites. Great film. Yeah, one called The Letter, All About mm-hmm. Eve. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, another fantastic film, All About Eve. Yeah, about the the, the 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 careers of actresses on their way up and on their way down. <laughs> you know how quickly it can happen. Uh-huh. And she's another person who I think about a lot, um, especially when she arrived in Hollywood in the early 30s. Um, she didn't have, again, this is a much more shallow era that I'm referring to. She didn't have the traditional sort of screen beauty looks. Uh-huh. And so somebody from the studio went to meet her at the train station and they left because they didn't see that anyone that looked like a movie star. And one screen test, you know, where they put in front of a camera, see how they look on camera. The person behind the camera said, who did this to me? (laughs) Um, And there were a lot of others that aren't quite friendly for this show. Um, But she just kept going. Um, You know, all these really horrible things that she was said, and she just kept moving anyway. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah, she was beautiful, but you're right. She was not a classic beauty. 
in the Hollywood sense. She had very angular features. She had very large eyes. Yes. And, um, yeah, so it was almost like everything was a little out of proportion, you know, yes. but still all fit together wonderfully. Yeah. One, one film that she's good in, it, it, I guess this is towards the end of her career, but oh my gosh, she plays such a pathetic evil character. And that it's whatever happened to baby Jane with Joan Crawford. Yeah. And that might be one of her best known movies. Um, and that came at a time when she was literally being offered no other work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the reasons why she took it. Also only a couple of years before that, Walt was considering her for Mary Poppins. Um, she would have fit the book version. Yes. A whole lot better than Walt's film version. Yeah, like reading the book and the Mary Poppin books, if you have Kindle Unlimited, they're available on Kindle Unlimited here and there. Um, but yeah, she would have fit this more sort of tart type lips, um, intentionally not pretty. And mold. and a bit and, and harsh, a lot of sharp edges that character had. She was not the warm, cuddly, <laughs> motherly um character that's in Mary Poppins the film. Yeah, and still a little bit of a sense of humor. Yeah, yeah. But um yeah, I grew up reading those books and so I mm-hmm. it was hard um balancing between okay, this is the Mary Poppins in the book and then this is the Disney version of it. Yeah, if you read the book and watch the movie, you can see why maybe PL Travers wasn't too happy. Oh, absolutely. And you know, they've always said PL Travers Travers modeled Mary Poppins on herself. Yes. And she was <laughs> let's just say an edgy person. <laughs> or she's just, she's like Betty Davis. She's hysterical if you because she would just say these things, and you're like, why would you say that? Yeah. So now, so what? How did Betty Davis end up at Disney, and what um, films was she in? She was initially in Return from Witch Mountain mm-hmm. in 1978, and she was offered the role, um, and she took it because she wanted to see what kind of special effects Disney used, and she had never been in a Disney film previously. Um, and she was thrilled by the opportunity. Um, and again, she loved this lot. She also described it as sort of like a college campus. And again, she wanted to see what special effects were used. And she wanted to try something new. Um, a sort of supernatural type movie like this for her was new. But another thing I always keep in mind is she said, you know, new things are good for us. Um, so we should always try something new. And then she was in The Watcher in the Woods. Um, a very which, troubled production. Yes. Everybody well, the year the of release. Of that. <laughs> I'd have sort of a footnote in there about the year of release. Because um, it initially was released in 1980. And then, like, well, officially in 1981. Because they actually had to redo the film. Mm-hmm. And Betty Davis had been in dozens of films at that point. Um, many of which, by her own admission, were not great. Um, sometimes she took work just to work. And that was the first movie she had that actually had to be pulled from release and then redone and reissued in part due to the ending. And so if you haven't seen The Watcher in the Woods, I still recommend it, but I mm-hmm. love Betty Davis, so I'm sort of biased. Yeah. Um, and it's on Disney+. Plus. But, you know, at one showing she went to, they didn't even show the last part of the movie, and she said the audience didn't really even seem to care. Um, you know, so in terms of Walt's principle of creating a story the audience cares about, you know, that's a sign that it was a resounding failure. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. If he lost interest, then it was over. Right. So, um, 
But I remember her also, and I don't know how old I was, but it was a mini series on television, and it was The Dark Secret of Harvest Home. And I remember really liking it. But I was younger, so, you know, maybe my sensibilities were a little different. But it was a very creepy, it, it was a classic setup where a young couple from the city moved to this 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 country, this, you know, this village they called the Coombe. And um, it, it's, it's not quite like the Amish, but you can see they pulled some things from that culture. And um, of course, there is a dark secret, and Betty Davis is at the heart of it. And um, it's really good. I don't know if you've ever seen it. No, but I should watch it. That sounds like right up her alley. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. And she's Definitely. a good person to be – like I lo- just, she's one of my favorite people from history, and she's a good person to be obsessed with because she wrote several books. There's a lot of biographies of her. She loved um, being on talk shows. I was just going to say that. I remember when I was a kid seeing her on a lot of talk shows. Yeah, so, and sometimes – I'm sorry. Well, no, no, that's okay. She was, she was very direct, very sardonic yes. on those shows. Yeah, and sometimes actresses didn't always like that because they felt like they were sort of getting put out to pasture a little bit, um, which I think is fair. But she liked that people still appreciated her work. Um, Later in life, she had a couple of strokes, and so she talked sort of slow, and they would let her talk as long as it took. Mm -hmm. So she was always treated with great respect. And you're right, she just would just say whatever was on her mind. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. She was at the point in her career, she knew where the bodies are buried, and she didn't she she didn't care if she told the stories about no. them. So, but yeah, and and there's a lot of those interviews are on YouTube, like Johnny Carson and you know places like that. So um, yes, if you look for her there. And now, is it true that they she had a big rivalry with Joan Crawford, or was that studio created that rivalry? Well, so like in the 30s and 40s, they had a couple of like romantic like interest in same men. I think most of it was just gossip. Mm-hmm. And she was in whatever happened to baby Jane with Joan Crawford. And when she was asked about it after the fact, you know, people would ask, well, what was she like to work with? What was the set like? And she would just say she showed up and she knew her lines and she did her job. Um, and they didn't like each <laughs> other and they didn't make a secret about, but she's like, all this rivalry stuff is basically just gossip. Um, and I believe her, if there was a lot of the drama going on, I think she just would have said it. Um so I think most of it was just gossip. So maybe they didn't like each other, but they respected each other's talent. And they were both professionals. So doing things like purposely sabotaging the set of a movie um, oh my is totally inconsistent <laughs> with that both of their characters. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were both professionals, workaholics. I mean, they both had various troubles, but who doesn't? Um, right. Right. No, but I think most of it's just gossip. And and then finally, the actress I wanted to bring up is someone I actually worked with when wow. I was a child actor. And now it's not like she was inviting me over to her home for tea or anything like that. But um, a lot of people know her, I think, from her Disney films, also from her being a co-star on the television series, um, The Bob Newhart Show, and a cameo at the end of his second series, Newhart. And um, and that is Suzanne Plachette. And because I knew her mainly, well, from the one film I was in with her, and then all her Disney films, I was very surprised to hear. She had a career 
that was the polar opposite of the kind of characters she um, played in Disney films. Oh, you have to give me your in-person impressions of her. I didn't know this. Oh, I I was young and, you know, I was just, I was in like group scenes with her, like in the classroom where we were singing that horrible song over and over again about uh, combing her hair with codfish bones. I still know a lot of that (laughs) song because we had to do it so many times. Then I was at the birthday party scene when the first attack occurred. Well, the first major attack occurs, significant attack, bird attack. And then, um, and then the, the scene of running down hills over and over and over again. I was in that one too. When, for the, before the huge bird attack on, on the town of Bodega Bay. So oh, I didn't know she, you had a little role in the birds. Yeah. Yeah. And she was very nice. I mean, she's very nice, very professional. Um, and I didn't realize who I was really, you know, who was in the film be, until I saw her in a Disney film when I was a little older and said, I know her. <laughs> so I don't remember which one it was that I saw her in, but, uh, but she had quite a, quite a career in Hollywood before moving to television in Disney. Yeah, and Suzanne Plachette, she also um, had no qualms hopping back and forth between movies and television. Mm -hmm. Um, And she was always recognizable on either. Her laugh is a trademark that I heard over and over again in terms of how memorable she was. Um, You know, she had this wonderful laugh um, and a great kindness. She was very welcoming. Um, Her father ran some theaters in New York. So Suzanne Plachette, she grew up in show business. Um, So, you know, people like Milton Berle would walk her to school. Oh my you know, gosh. and she knew the Andrew okay. sister. So she was comfortable around people like Alfred Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. Um, but she also knew that, you know, being new on a set can be quite nerve wracking. Um, entering the business can still be nerve wracking. So she would make sure to introduce herself, you know, to, you know, she would say, you know, Hey, here's the men's room. Here's the women's room. Here's where we go to lunch. You're welcome to join us. And that was something people consistently remembered about her. Yeah, and she would be things like, and she was also on stage, but she would be in, she she portrayed characters the full gamut. It would be dramas, um, comedies, action, um, and then television series as the as the sort of modern wife, and um, to, so I mean she. She, she I, I don't know if she ever really got typecast, except maybe for her voice, but um, but she, she I mean, yeah, well, she's she, even Leona Helmsley. <laughs> yes, well, so a lot of the writing of this book was right at the beginning of the pandemic, and so I wasn't too familiar with Leona Helmsley, so that's probably one of my favorite roles she played. Mm-hmm. So I went down a whole rabbit hole learning more about Leona Helmsley. Um, for those not familiar, she owned a lot of hotels in the 70s, 80s, 90s in New York. And she helped really create a lot of this excess of the 80s. Um, but she was also known as the queen of me. She was a ruthless businesswoman. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember when she was at her height and always in the papers for something. So, she left uh, millions of dollars to her dog. Yeah. <laughs> Which, uh, yeah. I, I would I would have worried about the, the lifespan of that dog and who was <laughs> next in line. Or, you know, like in the Aristocats, you know. (laughs) They did have to hire security for it. I'll bet Um, they did. Yeah, but she she never really was typecast. Um, You know, she was on the Bob Newhart show for a while. 
Um, and so, you know, for this time, you know, she was a woman, you know, with, who was a wife who had a career outside of the home. Um, mm-hmm. That show is enjoyable to watch still. It holds up pretty well. Oh, it does. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It does. So, so tell us a little about her Disney career. So she, well, first she was in a movie called 40 pounds of trouble with Tony Curtis, which is sort of like your typical, you know, universal rom-com. But part yes. of the scenes are filmed in Disneyland. Um, and, and, and it's sort of crazy. I, I've seen, I own this film and yeah, they take the yeah. monorail from the hotel and they step out on fr- from the monorail train onto main street. <laughs> yeah. So it was 1962, 40 pounds of mm-hmm. trouble. Mm-hmm. And so like, so you can see it's a bit mixed bag because you can see Disneyland in the sixties, you know, in a high quality, you know, on high quality film, which is great. But like you said, there's a lot in there that like they get off the monorail on the right on main street mm-hmm. um, where you see someone selling souvenirs on like a fold out card table in the hub. Yeah. But you do see a lot of the classic attractions that you see gone. a big chunk of mind train through nature's wonderland, which you yeah. just talked about. Yeah. So anyway, so that was her first film that had, that was filmed at Disneyland, not a Disney film though. No. And then, so Walt saw her in that film and was very intrigued by her and then cast her in the ugly dachshund with um, Dean Jones. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the first Disney film I saw her in when I recognized her Mm -hmm. (laughs) as a kid. And so I mean, she was happy with the role, but she was a little apprehensive because she was known for playing these sort of saucy, risque type women by the standards of the time. Um, and so, you know, now she's going to this studio that has a street called Dopey Drive. Mm-hmm. So she's a little concerned, well, how am I going to fare here? But, you know, it was welcoming. There were people on the crew that she had worked with before. Um, and she absolutely loved her experience. She loved working with Walt whenever, because Walt was on the set of live action films pretty much as often as he could. Um, I don't know how he was all these places all the time, but he was on sets of live action films all the time. And so she loved seeing him. And, you know, later in life, she considered the Disney lot her second home. Um, probably my favorite Disney role of hers is in the Shaggy DA. Mm-hmm. And again, she's paired with Dean Jones. And that's another live action film that has a lot of great, you know, character actors. Like you have um, Iris Adrian in it, who I discuss in the book. Um, again, you have Dean Jones, um, Joanne Worley, and that was 1976, the Shaggy DA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and yeah, she was in a number of them. I know she was in like Blackbeard's Ghost. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know, I know I had heard about her. Um, she, she's, she had talked quite a number of times about her final meeting with Walt. And I think you document that in your book. That when he came to visit the set of Blackbeard's Ghost. Yeah, she felt like she could tell that he, you know, he sort of had this sickly color and felt that he was probably passing away. Yeah, I think she, she, she recognized it from, I think, a family member who had passed. Yeah, so she knew that look. Lines. Yeah, and I, I know she talked about how, you know, they hugged and then afterwards she went into her trailer and cried. Yeah, so, especially because uh, this was a time when there wasn't really a whole lot of treatment for cancer. Mm-hmm. No, not cobalt, which right. was horrible. And then she did the um, Adventures of Bullwhip Griffin, another one of my favorites from my childhood that I remember I enjoyed. Yeah, that one's fun with um, Roddy McDowell. Mm-hmm. Um, t- oh, taking partially taking place in San Francisco. Yeah, 
Yeah. And that gave her the opportunity to sing. Yeah, which she wouldn't have thought she could be a good singer, but um, she pulled it off. She did. (laughs) So, but anyway, but yeah, so um, so definitely in a lot of films. And, um, you know, just... It was enjoyable to read about her. And it, and this is only a few of the actors Spencer writes about in his book, The Enchanted Disney. As I mentioned earlier, um, anyone interested in both the Golden Age of Hollywood and Walt Disney Studio will enjoy reading this book. So Spencer, do you want to, do you want to sort of talk about or just list out some of the other actors that are, that we didn't talk about? Just, you know, run through their names so folks know. Yeah, so we have um, Paula Negri, Iris Adrian, Ray Bolger, um, Beulah Bondi, Sesu Hayakawa, Maurice Chevalier, Lillian Gish. Let me just check if I'm forgetting anybody. Debbie Reynolds. Debbie Reynolds. How can I forget Debbie Reynolds? Debbie Reynolds. Yeah, people, that's another one. Well, probably are some of our younger or, you know, um, viewers, listeners know her from the um, Halloween Town series. Yes, she was Aggie. Mm-hmm. Um, Elsa Lanchester, who was the Bride of Frankenstein, and yeah. Adolf Monju. Mm-hmm. So a lot of a lot of great um, actors in 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 this book. So so I know I think so. It has something for everybody in here. Yeah, really, the goal is that. Um, you know, if you don't know a lot about Disney history, it's a great guide. And then if you do, hopefully you learn a lot more about these live action films. Yeah. And just about Hollywood of a bygone age yes. is really interesting as well. So, Spencer, how can our listeners um, purchase a copy of your book? There's two. Disney? Yep. Uh, there's two places. There's Amazon and it's on hardback, paperback and Kindle. And then also you can go to BearManorMedia.com. Um, that's the publisher. And I would encourage anyone listening to really, you know, sort of browse around that website, bearmannermedia.com. Um, there's a lot of books on there about people who contributed to the world of Disney. You know, there's a great biography of Fred McMurray, the first Disney legend, um, Paul Fries, who's most known for voicing the ghost host in the Juanet Mansion, um, and a lot of others. So definitely take a look around that, you know, catalog. Yeah, I will. That sounds interesting. So um, now are you working on any other projects that you can discuss? So I'm actually working on a biography of Iris Adrian, um, who I cover in the book. Um, I really developed an interest in her. She was a character actress who played what she called tough broads who are never mean. Um, so she played in the thirties and forties, a lot of show girls, diner waitresses, that type of you know character. And then as she got older, she played what she called the same babes, just older. Um, so she had supporting parts in 10 live action films. Probably most recognizable is the car hop in the love bug. Yes. Um, that's always the most funny. And, you know, I mentioned before how you never know who someone was or what they're doing or what their life is like. You know, if you think of her in that role, you know, my tentative title is a firecracker with sex appeal, the life and work of Iris Adrian. Cause 30 years before that, she was having a great time as a popular showgirl in New York city. Good. Well, we'll look forward to that coming out. It sounds like it'll be an interesting book about an interesting woman. Yeah. Yeah, she, yeah she's quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, Spencer, thank you again for sharing with us um, some of these wonderful stories.
about actors and actresses that we saw in Disney films, but had no idea they did anything else. You never know who someone is. That's right. Absolutely. And now it's time for This Week in Disney History. Okay, Spencer, well, I always um, give my co-host the option of going first to share what what is their tidbit of Disney history. So would you like to go first? Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so we're going to go to July 14th, 1928. And actress Nancy Olson is born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So she's probably most known for playing Betty Schaefer in the 1950 film Sunset Boulevard. Mm-hmm. Um, but for Disney, she was in Pollyanna, The Absent-Minded Professor, Son of Flubber, Smith, Snowball Express. And then she had a cameo in 1997's, um, 1997's Flubber. Um, so, you know, she, you know, and her and Walt got along very well. She came from the same sort of Midwestern background that Walt Disney did. Um, and one thing she always pointed out about the studio was how clean it was. <laughs> um, which is common, how clean, neat, orderly, not industrial, and how friendly this set um, was to work on. One of my favorites of hers was 1972 Snowball Express. It's on Disney Plus, and it has a pretty regular Disney group. It has, you know, Nancy Olsen in it, Dean Jones, Keenan Wynn, Mary Wicks. So anything with Mary Wicks I love. Um, and that's a really great, fun film. Um, she actually was recently, if you don't mention, if you don't mind me mentioning another show, she was recently on, um, with Haley Mills and she was talking about Pollyanna. She was on the Tammy Tucky show recently. Oh, okay. Which I'm going on on the 28th. Oh, good. Um, yeah. So it was her and Haley Mills talking about, you know, their careers and their time on Pollyanna. Oh, that would be interesting. I'm sure there's yeah. great stories about that. Cause that was... Haley Mills' first film with Disney, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, 1960 was her first film. Um, and, you know, how everyone really helped her. And, you know, her father, John, um, John Mills, helped guide her um, before he was off to film Swiss Family Robinson. Yeah. One of my favorite films. I think it was her first film after leaving Disney. And I, I watched this a few times a year just because I just find it so cheerful and because I can identify with a little bit a little bit with it. And it's the um, trouble with angels because I went to um, Catholic schools where, mm-hmm. you know, all boys schools. And so, and, and, you know, I was at, you know, uh, in boarding school as well, families, English, and then um, as well as, you know, standard schools, but all Catholic. So I, I was used to having all my instructors, all my teachers being religious either sisters or brothers or priests. And so in this one, The, um, the Troubled Angels, it stars Rosalind Russell, Mary Wicks. She was her first uh, nun um, role, as she made a career of it. And and there's a number of, oh, um, Marge Redman, and mm-hmm. and a number a number of actresses in there that had careers of their own. And so it's this Haley Mills who is a... Uh, let's just say a feisty young lady is sent to this boarding school to sort of hopefully so that the nuns can straighten her out. And of course she and Haley and she and Rosalind Russell mother's reverend mother, they clash 
And, but it goes through like three, it covers like three years and it's based on a personal memoir of somebody. And, um, and so it, it, there's not like a storyline. It's just story segments over this three year period that, that, that Haley Mills is in this school. And it's wonderful because I can identify with being in that kind of a school. Mm-hmm. Um, Rosalind Russell, who was Catholic, um, she got it down as to how a, a woman who has risen the head in order and a school uh, would act. And she got all the little nuances down of a sister in a traditional habit, like the little turn they would do to, to brush the veil, you know, sort of off their shoulders. And, um, and, and even like when she's caught, Haley Mills stumbles upon her when she's praying the rosary in a grotto. And, um, you know, the, when you're interrupted, you always look at the bead you're on and, and hold it with, you know, in your hand with two, you know, two fingers on either side of the bead. And so she had a lot of it down, but it's a delightful film. And so, I'll have to watch it again. I love Rosalind Russell. Yeah. She's very so good. I've in seen it. It. They made a sequel. Not as mm-hmm. good. <laughs> so without Rosalind Russell, with, with Rosalind Russell and all the sisters and, but, um, different set of girls, but there was a sister who was supposed to sort of be the adult Haley Mills character, but they could, Haley Mills opted not to, um, not to be in the film, which is probably a good decision. So they got, I forget who the actress was to play this particular sister. So, but yeah, definitely watch it. It's, I think it's available on some streaming service or something. So, Mm -hmm. Okay, my segment is, well, my history segment is July 13th, 1925. This is the uh, wedding anniversary of um, Walt Disney and Lillian Marie Bounds. This is when they got married. So on this July 13th. So, and of course, Lillian was one of his first employees at, um, and so they were married actually in the home of Lillian's brother in Lewiston, Ohio, Idaho, um, Sid O. Bounds. So, and he, um, was not, he was also Lewiston's, um, fire chief as well. And, and this is because Lillian's father's deceased. So, um, her uncle gives her away. And the uh, Reverend D.J.W. Somerville performed the ceremony. Lillian's sister, Hazel Sewell, who, and it was Hazel who was an employee at the studio and rose up quite high in it, who, um, who got, helped get Lillian the job and told him her advice was don't vamp the boss. Well, they ended up yes. getting married. And her, uh, and, uh, and her, and Lillian's brother, Sidney, were there and they were the witnesses. And, um, so, and, and that, that's it. So July 13th, you know, raise your glass to the anniversary of Walt and Lillian Disney. So, Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, so we want to remind folks of the Diz event that is coming up August 4th through the 6th. And if you go to the Diz boards, it, you know, all the information is there. And you, if, in case you haven't heard our previous episodes or anything, it, the event was moved from being in Pixar Gardens and Pixar Pier over to Avengers Campus because one of the main attractions on Pixar Pier was, is being closed for refurbishment. So we are going to, it starts on August 4th. 
and it's going to be at 8.30. Um, we will be escorted from the main entrance to Avengers Campus. And then 9 to 11.30, there's a private reception with food, beverages, and exciting guests, it says. So I wonder if any of the superheroes will, will appear. And then 11.30 p.m. to 1 a.m. is the private Avengers Campus party. And you'll be able to have unlimited rides on Web Slinkers of Spider-Man Adventure, Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout. And then it says special guests. I'm assuming that there are going to be some meet and greets and all that. So you can go on to the Discord. We have a thread that we'll have in our show notes, but it tells you how to purchase a ticket, which is $125 and which is cheaper than like a, a hard ticket event sponsored by Disney and also a, um, and, and how you can book a discounted room. At I at um the Disney's Grand Californian Hotel or the um Disneyland Hotel in there. So, and then August fifth, there is a uh, live podcast recording, and it's somewhere in the Grand Californian, but I I'm not sure where yet. I, hasn't been announced and then um and then on the sixth there will also there may be some meet and greet opportunities with some of the folks from the various um podcasts that the Diz Unplugged Dreams Unlimited um, travel sponsors in there. So I plan to be there. Spencer, are you going to be there? No, because not too long after I'll be in Walt Disney World. Ah, okay. Well, that'll be nice. Actually, not yes. long after I'll be at Walt Disney World too for yeah. the um, Destination D event. So, oh. Yeah. So I wanted to let folks know, you may have seen me post this on my Connecting with Walt Facebook Page. But Connecting with Watt was listed on in 10 incredibly niche history podcasts by lifehacker.com. And there's some fun podcasts in there. And we were quite honored to be included in that. And he has a very, apparently, um, the, the, the author is a listener to the show. So hello and thank you. Um, had an interesting write up about the show that was very, uh, very flattering. And so I want to thank you um, to be on there. And we'll have a link to the list in our show notes in case you want to listen to some other um, unusual history podcasts as well. But we were the only Disney one um, listed on there. Yeah, I started listening to one of them earlier today. Oh, which one? It was the Remarkable Providence. Um, It's about the Salem Witch Trials. Hmm. Um, But the interesting thing is, luckily, it's hosted by someone who was formerly a tour guide in Salem. Um, so they're really pinning on the fact that, you know, things like this in history, a lot of tension builds. And then when things finally snap, you never know what's going to happen. Um, in this case, it was the witch trials. So, okay. Well, interesting. That might be one I'll check out. So thank you. It's very good. So, um, folks may not have heard, but, um, well, I think we all know that some of the more recent films uh, from the Disney Studios and Pixar have not done well at the box office. And so Disney is re- – and I don't know if they're doing this in response to um, th- their the box office receipts that they've been getting or if this was planned all along. I'm very cynical, and I think that they thought, okay, we need to make some quick cash so they are re-releasing eight classic movies to celebrate the 100th anniversary um, to select theaters. So um, 
during July 27th to the 20th. They are um, going to be releasing Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. From July 21st to August 3rd, you'll have an opportunity to see Toy Story. August 4th to the 17th is Frozen. August 18th to the 31st, Beauty and the Beast. I assume that's the animated version. September 1st to the 14th, The Incredibles. September 15th to the 28th is Coco. September 29th to October 12th is The Lion King. And finally, Moana on October 13th through the 26th. So these are all readily available on Disney+. Plus. Spencer, are any of these ones you'd want to see on the big screen again? I think The Lion King I would like to just because, you know, that came out when I was a child. Mm Mm-hmm. So I'd love to see it again. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you that it's an income stream, um, which was, you know, something they did, you know, Disney did prior to VHS. Yes, every seven Um, years. Yeah. And yeah, they did re-releases of their films. And that was quite (laughs) profitable and helped make some films profitable. It's not a bad idea to have another chance to see some of them on the big screen, just because especially like um, Coco and Moana, the colors really pop and everything Mm -hmm. looks different. Yeah, and there's a you know there's a generation that has not seen any of these on the big screen, right. so it'll be fun for families to go back and check these out. Um, all speaking of of re releasing, Disney Plus is debuting a collection of twenty seven newly restored Walt Disney Animation Studio classic shorts. So these were restored by Walt Disney Studios Restoration and Preservation Team, and they worked and very closely with the creative advisors from the Walt Disney Animated Studios. So by the time this show is released, the first batch would have been, is already going to be available on Friday, July 7th. We'll be able to see the skeleton dance, building a build, uh, building a building, bath day, Figaro and Frankie, which is a cute one, goofy gymnastics and aquamania. So on Friday, August 11th, we'll get another, the next rollout. Now to be Barnyard Olympics, Mickey Steamroller, Donald's Nephews, Goofy and Wilbur, Donald's Cousin Gus, the Flying Jalopy. And then from September, premiering September um, 5th to the 8th, we'll, which I guess they're just sort of rolling them out whenever, is going to be Trolley Troubles, um, All Wet, The Barn Dance, Playful Pluto, Mickey's Kangaroo, Merbabies, Bone Trouble, Pluto Jr. And finally, um, what? yeah, I think this is the final batch, is um, October 6th. And when the cat's away, fiddling around, camping out, wink and blink and nod, old McDonald duck, inferior decorator, and chips ahoy. So I'm hoping that um, these will stick around a while. What I like is it's, it's the full range of, of really uh, every era. Of the shorts. Yeah, I was wondering, I was like, I wonder what their criteria is. Cause it's, I mean, I'm glad they're doing it, but it's mm-hmm. sort of just like a random list. I'm, I'm wondering how many of these were in the Disney Treasure series. Mm-hmm. Under like the Silly Symphonies collection, there were, there were a few volumes of that. And then the Mickey collection, a Pluto collection and all that. So I'm wondering if, so those were all remastered. So I'm wondering if they're just pulling from those. Right. That makes sense. So, yeah. Now, there was something that you brought up um, that you told me about, and that's on Disney Plus, since we're talking about Disney Plus, is the um, National Geographic documentary, Path of the Panther. So do you want to talk a little about that? 
Yes, it looks like, I'm not sure exactly when it released, but it, you know, it's a 2023 release date. And so it's a documentary from National Geographic called Path of the Panther. So it talks about, you know, the sort of current conservation efforts and the fate of the panther in South and up into Central Florida. Um, and I thought it was really interesting because, you know, it's easy a lot of times for us to think about the ecosystem there that really starts at Walt Disney World and then, you know, down to the southern tip of Florida as sort of like a swamp and just write it off as a swamp. But it's really beautiful. There's, you know, all kinds of beautiful birds, fish, small animals, and then, of course, the panther themselves that, um, you know, live there. And it's very raw and doesn't shy away from discussing the politics of Florida um, as well as development. Um, I mean, all over Walt Disney World, they're just building more and more and more. Um, so it talks about how it affects the wildlife. Um, but I will say it does end on a hopeful note. Oh, good. Well, so it starts off. Yeah, mm-hmm. it starts off a little rough, um, but at the end, they do end with positive updates. Oh, good, good. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And yeah, and I think we we need to support those National Geographic documentaries because you know Disney owns them as part of the 20th Century Fox purchase. And I don't think they were particularly after National Geographic, but. Um, They've announced that the magazine, National Geographic Magazine, will be ending newsstand sales by the end of the year. Um, They'll focus on subscriptions, and then there'll be a digital version of the magazine as well. So um, so I'm I'm hoping that they're still going to continue to make documentaries, and Disney's just not going to purchase documentaries and slap the National Geographic logo on them. So... um, Anyway, but because that's definitely a part of Walt's um, legacy are the are the nature series films, nature documentaries. Yeah, so. they do a good job making a lot of like very unique like topics, mm-hmm. um, like the panther in this one sort of small section of Florida. Yeah, yeah, I'll be interested in seeing that. And then you'd mentioned earlier in the show, Run Disney. So tell us about that. Yeah, so I did my first run Disney race in April. I did the Toy Story 10 miler. Um, and it was a really great experience. And I wanted to mostly give also a shout out to Disney just at how well run the event was um, from the registration, how smooth, you know, security was, bag check, the event itself, um, you know, the bus transportation to and from resorts. Mm-hmm. So basically, as soon as it became available, I signed up for the marathon in January. Um, so if you're ever interested in doing it, I would definitely encourage anyone to sign up. Typical of Disney, they say registrations like 10 a.m. on this date, like be online at 9.59, pressing the refresh button, Yeah, yes, you know, ready to book it. Um, but really, my only complaint is that I wish they had them more often. Um, it's a great energy because a lot of people do it for different reasons. You know, people wear all kinds of elaborate costumes. They have a lot of unique character meet and greets. They have beautiful medals. And you you see sometimes I think you go behind the scenes. Yes, part of the yes. Mm-hmm. Or, or this one, it was cool to see the living behind the land pavilion, the back of it. Um, and a lot of these sort of because we saw a lot of the backside of Epcot. Yeah, I've been I've been on the backsides of Epcot, and it's uh, it's interesting. It's really interesting to see. Okay, this is what we see in the park, but it's very different. <laughs> behind in the back of those pavilions. Yeah, so the marathon, I'm wondering what I'll see backstage for Animal Kingdom. 
Oh, that'll be good. Well, you know, maybe you'll run through the uh, the rhinoceros area or something like that, you know. <laughs> I'll try and see something. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, hopefully they'll do something cool as you go through there. Well, we'll look forward to hearing uh, about that. So now have you been, have you made any visits to Walt Disney World lately? Is there anything of interest that you, you noticed or experienced? My next visit is August. And so I go with my mother and sister. Now, traditionally every year, that was sort of like our yearly or every year vacation. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, a couple of years ago, my mother moved down there. So she's not too far from Animal Kingdom. Um, But we still have our vacation you know, every August. Yeah, it's weird. She was just at Animal Kingdom on July 4th. Um, and basically the park was empty. I heard that, if, according to reports, that they have not seen such low attendance on a 4th of July in like decades. I heard all the parks had, had lower than expected attendance. Yeah, because she made the reservation. You know, it's easy because if, if, if she goes there, it's too hot, too crowded. It's easy to leave and just go home. Mm-hmm. Um, so she went, no, it was like, so I'm wondering how it'll be in August. Um, I suspect it may even be less. So we've gone in August for years. Um, and it's always a great month to go. I mean, it's still sort of crowded and hot, but Southern schools are back. So crowds are down a little bit and you don't have the same heat that you do in June and July. Um, which is like absolutely broiling, but August isn't as bad. It's a little better. Okay. Good. Well, I've been there in August, yeah. So it's still, it's still a bit of a culture shock for um, <laughs> those of us in California. But anyway, good. Well, I hope you have a fun time there. So, well, are you going? You. Are you going to Destination D? As of now, no. It was sort of too close to other travels. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that I have a free place to stay, similar to run Disney, I can start doing all these events that I haven't done for years and years. Yeah, yeah, that'll be fun. So, well, Spencer, again, thank you for being on the show as the guest host and also as also to share um, share with us your book, The Enchanted Disney Stories of Walt, Hollywood, and Live Action Films. So, um, so definitely, I'm sure Craig will have a link in our show notes to someplace where you can purchase the um, book. And yes. um, anyway, so... But until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? And I'll send you the links. Um, but I'm on Facebook as Spencer Wright Author, and then on Instagram at Overlooked Diz. Okay, great. And you can send me messages at Michael Bowling at DisneyInfo.com. Twitter, I'm at MBowling121. Facebook, Michael Bowling dash connecting with Walt. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig and all of our guest hosts on Twitter at Connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studios, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at DisneyUnplugged.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.